Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The number of COVID cases is rising, especially in areas with low vaccination rates. Parts of the western U.S. are experiencing record heat. The bootleg fire in Oregon has burned over 360,000 acres. Democrats continue to try to persuade Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema to support an end to the filibuster. And although most of us may be wondering about voting or the Delta variant of COVID, billionaires Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos bicker over whose vanity flight really got past the bonds of Earth. Do you get the feeling that we're stuck in a, in a cycle? Bob Henley, who reports on leading political and economic issues for public radio, Salon, the chief leader in other news organizations has joined us on this show many times to discuss the news behind the news. And Bob has a new book out called Stuck Nation. Can the United States change course on our history of choosing profits over people? It's published by Democracy at Work and I'm very pleased that it brings Bob Henley to our show now. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. And to be truthful, I didn't think the book was real until I was on Leonard Lopez at large talking about it. Oh, well, <laughs> so we are kind of a reality check here, or at least right. I like to think of us as a. The title of your book is Stuck Nation, and you've tweeted under the handle Stuck Nation for several years. Is the United States not moving, or as many see it, moving in the wrong direction, down? Well, I would say that what are the dashboard indicators that matter? Uh, we now have law of life expectancy a year and a half because of COVID. Um, anyone who was paying attention, listening to the show, or just you know reading The Economist or the Financial Times regularly knows that America was uh, in, in a heap of trouble before this. A life expectancy declined for three years in a row before this. The last time that happened was before the last mass death event in the beginning of the 20th century around World War One, And so, and then if you look also at what's happening in terms of working people and in terms of the quality of life, it, it appears that every everything we've identified as an issue, as something pressing, whether it be global warming, wealth inequality, that our political system at this point is incapable of meaningfully addressing it and providing us with the traction we need to make a difference in everybody's life. Well, observers of American politics talk about gridlock in Washington. Is our stuckness more than than political gridlock? And how well, long do you how long do you think the nation has been stuck? Uh, did it all begin begin with Donald Trump, or does it go back oh no. quite a while? No, I think that the stuckness was what created the opportunity for Donald Trump. Um, it really goes back to, I would say, probably the 70s when um, Economic Policy Institute and other um, think tanks document that uh, Americans were incredibly productive. They were experiencing this ability through their work to make tremendous amounts of wealth, and yet they were not participating in it. And so over that period of time, both political parties uh, participated in a kind of three-card Monty where um, – Technology was developed by government, and yet it was put at the disposal of the likes of Jess Bezos, who now can um, uh, take on for themselves what used to be the province of a nation state that is to go to the moon, um, based on and fueled by their ability to avoid taxes here on Earth, which they pass along to everybody else. And so yeah. this is what is really at the core of this this stuckness. And, and I would also say that 
Um, if you look at um, the disengagement, uh, I mean, the inability, for instance, to fall through in any of the key civil rights initiatives that, you know, we know Dr. King died, so many of the people struggled for. If you actually look at what's been happening to African-Americans, they've been losing ground consistently, and it's only accelerated since President Obama has been in the White House. Well, there has been a mixed thing, uh, uh, although the, now we have the debate over voting rights. We thought we resolved that years ago. There, uh, there does seem to be a change in attitudes about Southern Civil War monuments, but right. almost daily reports of police misconduct have raised questions about systemic racism uh, in, in pretty much every city, North and South. So are we making any progress in terms of racism? Well, I think that you see the tremendous pushback uh, against uh, critical race theory because there's a certain group of, of white folks who uh, who don't want to feel bad about what's happened in the past. And so we're supposed to be giving them a wide berth. I make a point in this book that um, American capitalism has to deal with two key pieces of its foundation. One, the doctrine of Christian discovery which people who listen to B.I. have heard on Jefferson Ghost Source and on, on John Cain's program, Native Americans. Uh, that was a notion the Catholic Church had when the European powers were racing to gobble up parts of the world and trying to settle, quote unquote, the undiscovered world. And in the process, the Catholic Church gave them a franchise they couldn't resist, which is if you had a Jesuit in the front of the ship with a crucifix, why then everything you saw was yours. That's why, Leonard, people, brown people, mountains, rivers, whatever it was, you owned it. And that, to this day, is a controlling precedent in American law regarding Native Americans. Similarly, we have not come to terms with slavery. And as a matter of fact, we have found ways through predator capitalism to continue sneaky iterations of it, right? Like you have, oh, yeah, you're free, but you somehow can't ever afford all of your bills, paying them off at the same time each month. Oh, yes, you're free, but your children are so crushed by student debt, they're going to live in your basement forever. Have some of the new progressive representatives in Congress managed to move the party at all? The Democratic well, they, Party? Well, I, I would say, and there are some conversations in this book that talk about progress and the way that there are some there's some ground that is is being advanced on here. And so I talked to Reverend Barber about some of these things. Sarah Nelson, who leads the um, the flight attendant CWA, Cornell West. And, and there are. But you have to look not so much at the national level, um, but at the state level, just as we're seeing such a reactionary pushback in terms of voting rights. We are saying just in, in, in New York state uh, just recently, you had a legislature that's moved with the inspiration of of socialists far to the left you have a, a a governor who's somewhat not as powerful as he was and so what happened in the last legislature budget the last session was the passage of a bill that raised taxes on the wealthy over four billion dollars and then took 2.1 billion dollars and offered it to the essential undocumented workforce that um, are here that don't have documentation to be here and extended to them some economic protections, realizing the tremendous contribution that they've made mm. for decades, even as they've been oppressed and the fact that their status has been used against them in the marketplace. So that's something, that's a turnaround that would be 
Hard to imagine if it had not been for the movement that AOC has been spearheading. Several prominent Democrats, including James Clyburn and Hillary Clinton, have opposed the campaign of progressive uh, Nina Turner in favor of a more moderate Chantel Brown in a special election to represent Ohio's 11th congressional district. Is the Democratic Party establishment split on, on welcoming progressives into its ranks? Well, I would say that there's no doubt that they managed to get through 2020 with a very practical coalition with Sanders Sanders and the ideas and the passion that he um, uh, lit, being able to be transferred to Joe Biden in a way that didn't happen with Senate, uh, Secretary of State Clinton. And I think it's instructive to go back and see what 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 didn't work in 2016 and what worked in 2020. And also it kind of tells us what we need to make sure happens in 2022. Otherwise, we're going to lose a tremendous amount of ground. And it's conceivable that the Democrats could lose control of the Senate and House. Uh, after all, in 2020, as good as they did at the top of the ballot, they did lose ground in key state legislative contests and some of the margin in the House. In 2016... Um, but partly because of gerrymandering and other things. True, so, true, but also... So the, the, the elections are rigged to some degree, aren't they? That's true, but then also... The, that means that the policy choices you make are really important because you rightly say it is rigged. So consider that in 2016, in the places, and there's a lot of reporting in the book about this. I mean, that's one of the things that Stuck Nation is about is I had a chance to speak with uh, then Senator Obama when I was at WMIC when he was running for the presidency in 2008. Very much impressed by what he had to say. Uh, also had a sense when he started, when I asked him about how we felt about the issue of um, uh, trying to shift the country away from the war on drugs to seeing drug abuse as a public health matter as opposed to being a criminal justice matter. His answer there was very middle of the road. So I said, OK, this guy is a, a charismatic moderate, but he's not a change agent. But over those eight years, what happened was he was not able to do the block and tackling on behalf of working people required after Wall Street um, preyed on Martin Luther King Boulevard and Main Street. So all the time while he was president, talking about hope and change, on the ground, in places like Cleveland, Philadelphia, Irvington, Newark, the places I was going door to door and checking on social conditions, people were losing their homes. And, mm -hmm. and so in 2020, things had gotten so bad under Trump, people were motivated. But as Dr. Barber points out in the book, if the Democrats don't deliver on something like a $15 minimum wage, a promise they made. And if they let the corporate Democrats run the roost, like Manchin, then they could have the same effect that happened in 2016, where hundreds of thousands of African-American voters that were enthusiastic for Obama twice, but stayed home, paved the way for Donald Trump's disastrous presidency. But interestingly, uh, not just uh, white Democrat centrists are, are uh, not supporting Nina Turner, but the Congressional Black Caucus as well. Is that just realpolitik? Well, you have to look at how long the various members of the Black Caucus have been in office. There is a certain kind of uh, occupational hazard for extended incumbency, it's just the nature of it. And so when, you're, when you first get elected as a change agent, and then you have to run for office over and over again, it gets harder and harder 
to be that change agent when you have to go and raise money in the universe that's controlled by corporations. And so, you know, that's that's the problem. And so I think the fact that, you know, you might be able to ask, where was the Black Caucus when so many African-Americans were losing their homes to the likes of Wells Fargo? And so just the fact that you've been able to get elected over and over again doesn't necessarily mean that you are still a relevant change agent. It just means that you understand how the system works and there hasn't been an opposition. Remember, um, we take it for granted, but what tremendous energy and organizing did it take for AOC to displace Mr. Crowley, right? Hmm. So uh, like you say, the election's rigged and also we have to look out for the fact that it's very easy to demobilize the base and disillusion the people that that you that you need. And that's the other thing too is we still have not, and Reverend Barber makes this point in the book, we have still not yet delivered on the promise of in, uh, empowering the working uh, class folks that are low wage and low wealth in this country. Uh, they are not really present in the numbers that they exist. And that's where the potential is to transform America. That's where the, the, the third reconstruction of this country might occur. If we get those folks to the polls and more importantly, get them to be active in their local politics and more importantly, in their workplace, like we saw in Alabama with Amazon. But uh, in the uh, Democratic primary in New York City, Eric Adams defeated a number of more progressive challengers. Was that because he had more appeal or was the progressive vote slip, a split? I, I had that. I knew you were going to ask me that question. Um, and not because we shared notes, but because <laughs> I just have to push back a little bit because that is a kind of um, NPR, WNYC, MSNBC, 10,000 foot question. That means that I, I, you, you know, Eric Adams, you know that he was I've interviewed born him. In, right. I know. And you know that uh, with his mission as a police captain, he was a thorn in the side of Ray Kelly and the Bloomberg stop and frisk machine. People on this radio station heard him in real time, put his career at risk. And so I, I just hum, I would say with, you know, that this is. Eric Adams um, has the numbers, uh, the phone numbers and cell numbers of people who have been victims of police brutality because they called him for help. Mm. And he rivals Reverend Sharpton in terms of that constituent service. So I, I think the fact that he um, had a blue collar feel for how the city works and that he's in touch with some of the some of the difficulties that have happened. Um, that was kind of interpreted as, oh, well, and, and it's true that he has from time to time, shifted like all politicians do. And, I, you know, I know that the fact that he is was a former police officer was extrapolated that he is pro cop. And, you know, I do think, though, that we're we're we see potentially in his mayoralty and we'll see soon enough. Can we make the turn from public safety to community well-being? And I think that we, we're closer to that than we've ever been before. My guest is Bob Henley here on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Bob joins us regularly to talk about the, the stories behind politics. And today I'm very pleased that we're also talking about a new book that he's written, <laughs> published by Democracy at Work, called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? You uh, provided us with a... Uh, 
a little uh, snippet of an interview that you did with Barack Obama when he was running for president. Uh, what do you what do you, does that reveal? No, it's just I think that there's a certain kind of optimism and 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 you can hear in his voice um, the the potential that he offered for the country. You know that, but that's eight years and many many difficult decisions before that interview. So should we listen to it? Sure, go ahead. You talked okay. about Main Street versus Wall Street. What about this sophistication with the international circumstance where between the hedge fund secrecy and this offshore banking, we don't have a clue? Well, that's why I think it's so important, and I mentioned this specifically in the speech, that whatever new regulatory structures we come up with to deal with these new financial instruments, that they are in coordination with uh, other countries. And it is important that we get some kind of global system in place that assures that capital is not just fleeing from one country or the other to avoid oversight, avoid regulation, but uh, on the other hand, endangering the economies of all. So how much did he live up to his promise? Well, I can tell you. Over the eight years. Sure. I mean, I would say that when you look at certainly uh, that just that narrow issue, consider that eight years went by. And what are we hearing from Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, that we want to have an international, multinational tax structure where there's some kind of accountability so that multinationals um, and folks like Jeff Bezos and Michael Bloomberg don't figure out how to get over on everybody by not paying taxes and shifting that civic obligation to everyone else. Uh, So that's an example of how stuck the country is, that we still haven't really gotten points on the board there. It's what's disconcerting is. Um, President Obama knew the problem, right? He understood it. Um, in terms of certainly the tone that he set, I think that uh, it was he did a lot in terms of turning the dime in terms of how America was viewed overseas. But you have to look at the, the, the fact that on the critical issues, and I'm thinking, for instance, of the further notice war on terror, and when you think of the economic policies and this great American pyramid that's crushing working people. And that to some degree, that investment that Obama continued in the military industrial complex was a lost opportunity cost because what Leonard was happening at the same time, we were closing hospitals. We were, and I just did a story about just, you know, and, and the problem is that America is looks at it's a big country, but you got to get granular here. Let's just take Queens. I just did a story about this tragic situation where EMTs, veteran FDNY EMTs, can't retire after 30 years in the job of saving lives. So they expire before they retire. That's the plantation system in the city of New York, right? And so I talked with a senior man who'd been a captain who uh, made sure that an EMT who spent 30 years, had World Trade Center issues, then died of COVID, made sure he had a proper official burial. Um, And he was never able to retire. And the captain told me that in Queens, where he spent his career, we have closed several hospitals. We don't get granular about this. We don't get outraged about this. And so when we saw Elmhurst blow up and that catastrophic loss of life and the collapse of the healthcare system, that de Blasio and Cuomo and is, is responsible for, nobody goes back and says, what's the context? Hmm. Why was this thing so fragile? And so 
This is directly tied, this disinvestment in healthcare in rural and urban hospitals set us up for this pandemic. And that is a bipartisan accomplishment. Well, progressives tend to favor policy moves that are potentially more disruptive. So is there any evidence about which strategy works better, a more incremental approach or a more progressive one? Well, it, it's where you get granular. There's something about, uh, and this is where you have to look to local solutions. There's something that's going on in California um, in this uh, African-American neighborhood. Um, Brookings has a great article about this. It's a, a mall that's gone bankrupt and community activists uh, don't want it to fall into the hands of uh, predator capitalists, hedge fund types who, will, who want to develop luxury housing. And so the community is raised money and coming close to be able to buy it and basically put it to community use. And so that's the kind of radical thing you need. Hmm. It's hard to replicate on, uh, you know, have a national federal program, but it's those kinds of local initiatives. What's happened for uh, way too long is the business of the United States has been about amassing and protecting huge amounts of capital. That's what it's been. It's not been about increasing life, life expectancy. It's not been about uh, making sure we have a, a, enough of a, an economy that young people want to have children so that we have uh, new children and, and, and birth sufficient to carry our social promises going forward. It's not a country that um, uh, welcomes immigrants, really. We abuse them. And then, you know, and so what have we been doing? We've been uh, protecting and creating the ability to create oppressive and destructive mm -hmm. concentrations of capital on a scale that is unimaginable. And we're still doing it and wondering why the planet's on fire. Hasn't Joe Biden favored an incremental approach for most of his political career? Has he shifted at all in the past couple of years? Well, certainly on the granular issues of labor, it's been night and day. One of the things that was undercovered because for whatever reason, working people's stories, unions uh, just don't get covered unless the union leaders get indicted, in which case it's wall to wall. We have seen an important change. Uh, Donald Trump went after the unions in the federal civil service um, and tried to get rid of them and drive them out. And we've seen a change in tone and substance from uh, President Biden that's very important. We see um, uh, the president weighing in through executive orders on doing things to try to improve the ability of people to organize. And that's important. Uh, and that's by the way, said, he's also he, he's also since apologized for the way he handled Anita Hill's testimony about alleged sexual harassment in the, in the Senate hearing over Clarence Thomas's nomination to the Supreme Court, although Anita Hill said the apology wasn't <laughs> enough. Well, I mean, there's no doubt, again, he was caught in that that occupational uh, issue hazard that goes with incumbency, right? Of course, as a senator from Delaware, he did the bidding of our Cayman Islands, which is what Delaware is. Delaware has been key to making large fortunes and corporations feel comfortable by creating secrecy and a chancery court that's totally rigged towards capital. Um, it's one of his one of his uh, the things that's a knock on his legacy, of course, is he was one of the people behind the idea of making it so you can't discharge college debt through bankruptcy, something that Jerome Powell from the Federal Reserve, hardly a Marxist, Leonard, 
He says mm. there's no reason to continue that that kind of uh, exemption. So, uh, but I do think that in that in tone and substance, Biden is trying to do turn this thing around. Uh, but there are examples, for instance, um, the the continued, and this is where Democrats have a blind spot. You can't continue to have this huge expenditure for this global war on terrorism and this. Um, this architecture with nuclear weapons and then not understand in a world of limits that you're making choices. And that, and this is something Dr. King said at his, you know, that he was making such a clear point on towards the end of his life, this connection, there's a through line. You can't put all of your treasure and fortune in death machines and be surprised when life expectancy slides because you've cheated your hospitals. Hasn't Biden like, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema talked about building bridges with Republicans. So does it matter what Biden does if Manchin and Sinema are, in effect, allying themselves with Republicans at times? Well, this is where it gets into the architecture of stagnation, of course. And so this idea yeah. of certainly... Are we stuck? Well, well, yeah. And of course, the filibuster, which is, you know, a relic of segregation, it's certainly uh, nowhere in the Constitution. Uh, that is a legacy. That's another example of where we are so securely in our past. And so what folks don't seem it's it, we have to keep present in our mind is the thing that happened with slavery and Jim Crow that came afterwards. There were things even like you think FDR, great a bastion, a, a liberal lion, no doubt. But one of the things a lot of people don't know is that in the deal to create the 40 hour work week and the Fair Labor Standards Act. Guess who got cut out of that deal back in the 30s? Well, in order to get Democratic votes, to get this great thing that would transform the lives of millions of American households, they cut out, who did they cut out? Domestic workers and agricultural workers, hmm. who had just been recently, more recently than now, released from slavery. And so to this very day, even in a blue state that prides itself on being progressive, we have a separate tier minimum wage for migrant farmers, and they don't get overtime. Why? why well, why would that be? Is that because they don't work hard? Is that because they didn't put themselves at risk during COVID and some of them die? No, it's because they're the wrong color. And don't the, the Northeastern states like New York, New Jersey and Massachusetts kind of pat themselves on the back for having better histories on racial equality and other issues of justice? Uh, do uh, they need to examine themselves more more closely? Because uh, in your book, you examine New Jersey's history, for example, with the story of a farm that dates to the colonial, colonial era, Pitney Farm in right. Mend of New Jersey. Right. What did you yeah, find well, that, there? That was, um, uh, that was a case where uh, that's where I say that so much of what we need to know is existing around us and is granular. And that's, the, that's a, another chapter I deal in the book is the corporatization of the news means that there's fewer people at the local level going around and collecting information and reflecting on our history and our current events. And so that's another thing to important to keep in mind is our history is not static. It's not an artifact. It's a process. And yes, that's right. I was um, uh, helping my daughter out at, um, at her organic farm stand at a uh, 
a place in Mendham that the municipality had bought, and it was a, kind of like a, the equivalent of a plantation, I guess. It was Pitney Farm, and the hands are the same um, kind of aristocrats going back to before the American Revolution. And it had me thinking, well, you know, probably slaves worked this land. And what I discovered was that they had been disappeared from the official memory. And this is no surprise to listeners of this station, just like Tulsa was disappeared, right? But as it turned out, indeed, uh, slavery was a part of that landscape. And uh, in the 1770s, I, I came across a document where a young African-American male uh, named James, who was 13, a writ of habeas corpus was issued by the state of New Jersey to order the uh, the patriarch, Mr. Pitney, to turn over this young man who was illegally in slavery. And so that got me searching at all these documents, and I realized that I was walking past places where slaves had been kept. And then I found out that Morris County was a hotbed of um uh, debate about this, that even during the American Revolution, a Reverend Jacob Green predicted that the United States would be a failed revolution if it clung onto slavery as it attempted to move itself towards independence. And well, so, when, when, local, when localities in states like New York and New Jersey are confronted with legacies of this sort, how do political leaders respond? Do they just simply willfully ignore uh, these, these aspects of our past? Well, when it was raised at the local planning board meetings, because it ended up, strangely, the mansion caught fire like we do in New Jersey. You know, it was an arson. Hmm. Nobody on a rainy night. No one knows exactly okay. how it happened, but it's gone. And so all through that process, and now you go there, and we did what we always do. We turned it into a cul-de-sac of luxury housing um, mm -hmm. and, I guess, some smattering housing. But all through the process, requests to have an archaeological dig were dismissed. And so we don't want to see this history. And so there can be um, a, a, a positive response to this kind of thing. And you can embrace this history, and you can own this history because the, a future can only be based on a reconciliation out of these ones of the past. You just can't blow past it. We've been trying to do that now for a long time. And as George Floyd so tragically amplified, hmm. we've not done it well. And we'll look a bit more into that history after we take a little break. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. guest on today's show is Bob Henley, who reports on leading political and economic issues for public radio, for Salon, the chief leader of the news organizations, and for this show as well on a regular basis. He has uh, just published a new book called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? It's published by Democracy at Work. Uh, I was... Um, I want to return to New Jersey for a moment because sure. there's a really interesting bit of history 
that I'm sure most people are unaware of. New Jersey passed the Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery in 1804. Uh, So has the debate over gradual versus more abrupt approaches been simmering for a long time? Oh, this is a classic. So, uh, and this is why Trenton, you know, um, states are like personalities, you know, like drunk uncles or, you know, (laughs) and New Jersey has a personality when it comes to, gosh, it loves wealth and it wants to do whatever it can to help people amass it. So slavery is presented as this problem. And of course, New Jersey was founded based on land grants that the more people you had that were enslaved, the more land you got. So that was in its DNA. Along comes the American Revolution. It splits the, um, the colony so that you have people who were um, loyalists and they have slaves. So not to miss a business opportunity, they send the loyalists up to Nova Scotia, they, and then they confiscate their slaves, and the state of New Jersey has themselves a slave auction. Seems like the only reason. They, they, yeah, they also extended the voting rights. <laughs> they right. extended voting rights to white women and to free African American men. Right, and that was and that was a a, a Quaker blip that they soon corrected. Mm-hmm. That's true. There was this little utopian burp that happened, and then they quickly corrected it once it was about but thir- about thirty abolition, years later. Right. I want to go back to the eighteen oh four Abolition Act because what it did is it said that if you were born. At a certain date, I think it was July 4th, that date, um, the people that were born that at 18 would be emancipated. So it was like it, it was phased in. And then this is the best part, because, again, they're always looking out for the economic development of the people that have already economic development. They create a system by which if you had slaves and you could declare them paupers, wards of the state, and the state of New Jersey would send you a little monthly payment to support them. Isn't that nice? Kind of a win-win, you know what I mean? Like, And so in essence, the state treasury subsidized slavery for a few decades, and then it got to be so costly, they cut it out. And but so, they also gave women, white, at least white women, the right to vote, uh, which was would have been considered very progressive at the time. And then as I said, in, 19, in 1807, uh, a new law stripped away those rights and limited right. the vote to free white men with property. And that remained uh, the law until 1875. So being stuck sometimes is a, is a kind of a, a precursor to, to uh, actually slipping backwards. Oh, and that's so true. And, and if, I, if you look at, and because and, that's one of the things, American history, the disnification of it, with the exception of great works like Howard's Inns, is presented with this bias that it's this Edward forward pro, uh, progression moving forward. The march of time. We're doing better than we were yesterday. That's the great American conceit. <laughs> and yet we're not. And yet yeah. when you have like we have now a situation where fires are out of control in six states affecting our weather uh, and atmosphere here, where we have yet another round of COVID, where we have uh, a government in, uh, that has doesn't have enough uh, faith of the public to be able to even get the people to act in concert in their own self-interest. I mean, that's another piece of this, you know, jumping forward to our current moment. I, I think that there's, and this is an example of stagnation, and there's an incoherence that, that exists right now in society that we have to recognize. On one hand, we're told that the vaccines are going to save the day and that the corporations and the 
pharmaceutical complex that created it are just to be lauded. On the same news cycle, it's farther down below the fold, maybe on the inside in the business page, the same pharma companies are paying billions of dollars to resolve the ongoing criminal conspiracy known as the opioid crisis, a.k.a. Sackler and the great opioid dialogue. And so we need to reconcile this so that we understand that our brothers and sisters that are reluctant about uh, uh, bellying up for a vaccine, they have some reasons to be concerned, although I personally am vaccinated and endorse the concept. You sound like somebody on Fox, actually. (laughs) Now, President Biden visited Tulsa, Oklahoma on Memorial Day weekend, acknowledged the uh, the white supremacist massacre of hundreds of African-Americans in 1921. Isn't that the first time a president has addressed that history? Do you see that as a step forward? I refer to it in the book, and and I do think that, I mean, what's crazy, and we have to have, you know, to those uh, of our listeners who've been kind enough to continue listening all these years, people who listen to BAI heard about Tulsa decades ago. Um, Just a little little thing I even did did shows on it. I know, I know. and, And it's not just BAI, but certainly the fact that we are owning this stuff is part of the reconciliation that has to happen. And similarly, we have to have um, a a realization, you know, what happened with the Great Recession, the loss of African-American home ownership, the predatory nature of the banks. What I witnessed firsthand and saw was that these banks paid fines and continued the same predator behavior. They're still doing it even today. Well, the Department of Justice has chosen not to prosecute Trump's Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, for perjury. Is anybody in the uh, Trump administration being held accountable uh, for crimes by the federal government? I'm not talking about uh, local courts. Well, I mean, we do have the latest news about Tom Barrick um, uh, being arrested on foreign corrupt practices charges. I mean, I act more precisely that he was acting as a lobbyist for the uh, UAE. United Arab Emirates. Right, right. And then... Uh, and what's so funny, though, and this is part of Bob Henley's universal swamp theory, um, <laughs> uh, Mr. Barrick is, is should be known to people that follow my work. He was he was from Colony Capital, and you know, a decade or so back, um, we have this mall in New Jersey that the state wanted to build on state land called Xanadu. It was first called Xanadu. They filled freshwater wetlands, and then you know, poured all this concrete. You know, it was like a crime scene visible from space. It sat there empty. I think now it's finally gotten um, opened. But Mr. Barrick was selling uh, stakes in this. And, of course, he ended up getting out before it cratered. And then, of course, public employees, you know, I think $120 million was lost from hardworking pensioners who respond to your, you know, who are, who are public servants. So these guys are around. That's the thing about this that's so amazing to me. If you pay attention for any period of time, their criminality is well known and then they get caught and everyone is so surprised but we indulge them because there's something about americans uh, and the way they're cut wealthy people are covered that they're deified and so we don't see the scandal behind the fortune and and there's and because of the fact that media wants closeness we want proximity we want to be next to mr bezos when he steps out of his capsule Nobody asked, you know, in that stage press conference, that embarrassment of a press conference when he came back from that vanity project of going into space. You knew nobody was going to ask him a question about 
the wealth disparity that his kind of fortune creates. Or his fighting unionization. Right, exactly. Well, there, there are any number of other instances. The Sackler family doesn't admit any responsibility, will be protected from uh, future lawsuits in connection with the opioid crisis. Pacific Gas and Electric pleaded guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter slaughter after the 2018 campfire in California, yet victims have yet to receive most of the promised compensation. Uh, businesses managing the Fire Victim Trust have received $50 million in fees. Have the wealthy managed to guarantee a profit regardless of how they and what they do? And this gets back to stagnation. And so at the same time, and there's been a lot of journalists have done some great um, uh, writing about this. There's been this incredible, we really need to have the working class held accountable. That's right. You're not going to, if you, you know, smoke pot, you're going to be accountable. We want you to make sure that you pay the price so you're a better person. And that does not exist in a certain level of society. And so you have primarily the law enforcement system that's organized as a tool of oppression to keep things moving up to the pyramid. And, and this is one of the things that creates when you talk to cops, they're often the, the position of having to handle the homeless that are a direct result of this obscene wealth inequality. And yet we expect them to sort it out. And so you're right about accountability. And I could think of any other a number of other examples where there's so many SEC settlements where they pay money and then expressly in small print, but this is no admission of personal or corporate liability or responsibility. And so that's how we've structured it, because, again, our purpose is wealth preservation here at the USA Corporation. And that's... Uh part of your subtitle of your new book. My guest is Bob Henley. His new book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, published by Democracy at Work. Uh, the, um, whether the, you're a Democrat or Republican, you write that part of the reason we remain a stuck nation is that there's a bipartisan consensus to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on the military at the expense of other areas like the environment, education, healthcare, housing. And um, a listener, Jeffrey Abrams, writes uh, that he just read that Biden is asking for $753 billion for the 2020 military budget. So um, how are we ever going to lower the military budget? Or, or is this something that isn't this something that both Democrats and Republicans agree on? This is actually um, the same. This is this is one of the core stuck nation um, platforms. And the way that this works is, of course, the defense contractors have, as I'm sure listeners are aware of, have spread these contracts out so that many states have a piece of the action. Sure. And but the thing is, and your listeners right, I know it's it's well north of 700 billion, but that's that's only part of the real cost because the kicker is it's done with borrowed money, friends. And so you have to factor in there the fact that we don't really have any of this money. So the United States issues debt to pay for it. Now, who do you think might benefit from that much debt? Hmm, wealthy people. Because where do you put your profits if you don't want to pay taxes? If something just happened, you don't want to get taxed and you can't put everything in the Cayman Islands? Why, friends, 
your government bonds are a good bet. And that's what we do. And so you've heard it. That's why the MTA just can't seem to get out of its own way. Because, yes, they've got to pay for people to run the trains and to lay the track. But then there's the passive income that has to be paid to Wall Street. Hmm. Has the COVID pandemic changed thinking about government budget priorities? Uh, the reason I ask is, uh, don't quite a few Republicans now argue that we should spend even less on social programs, including health care, despite the pandemic? Well, this gets back to uh, the crazy and wild definition of infrastructure. So when we say infrastructure, if we're conditioned, we see a bridge, we see a dam, we might see an airport. Um, the American Association of Civil Engineers comes out with a report card. Any beat reporter does these stories. It's the same story. America got a D. America got an F. Blah, blah, blah. Same thing year after year. You can actually write it the same story and just change the date line. Um, and, but funny, the thing they don't include in this would be hospitals. And so that's part of the problem. And so this disinvestment's gone on for so long. And what the pandemic revealed, especially if you look at ex excess death mortality numbers, which are much higher than the actual COVID losses, what you see is that we have disinvested in public health. Now, if we were, if we were like Haiti, or if we were a so-called, quote-unquote, developing nation, we have the IMF, well, you see that so-and-so, Republic X, seems to have a decline in life expectancy. We really need to have a, cl a close look at their priorities. I mean, that's how we talk to the rest of the world. However, we have this bleeding out thing that's happening with life expectancy and opioid deaths and the rest, this incredible off-the-charts um, uh, inequality when it comes to um, African-American female um, uh, birth outcomes and uh, and maternal outcomes. And that isn't part of the conversation. And so that's why it's important to connect like the progressives are in Congress, that the choices we make about defense spending means that we're making other choices about what we borrow and what we don't deal with directly. And certainly, I think looking out my window now and seeing the smog that's coming in that's having an impact on the weather system here, a clear and present danger to the United States would be global warming. Hmm. Well, weren't a number of regulations aimed at protecting us relaxed or even eliminated under Bill Clinton and Barack Obama? Well, so it's it, it's not just the Republicans. No, and I, I and listen, this this uh, the other great example of this is Superfund sites. I mean, you gave an example of that fire in California where the folks that are administering the fund um, seem to make out well. Look at Superfund. I mean, this is another perennial story that I've done my whole life. Something's declared a Superfund site, and the people who live around it they pay a price. The value of the homes goes down. The people that live there are stuck. They can't sell their home, and so they have these toxic exposures. And no money really goes to cleanup. It goes to lawyers to argue about the cleanup. And so that's kind of emblematic of where we are. Um, and so um, that, and so that, that's that. And so when you talk about this thing that happened under Clinton, there's no doubt that that neoliberal thing that really got traction under Obama. You can't talk about Clinton without mentioning. Um, what happened with NAFTA. Um, you can't, um, that whole free trade notion is directly connected to the immigration and migration crisis that this country set off. I mean, when we destabilized 
the local economies in Chiapas and places like that um, by creating this this cheap corn that was imported from the United States. That was a great day for the contributors and and uh, in the in the wheat uh, commodity business. But it was a horrible thing. I don't know if I told you this, and I don't know if I included it in the book. But in Freehold, um, there was a there were day laborers who were being harassed by the white power structure. And I went down and covered that. And, and, and in an example of some real solidarity, African-American church offered the Latino day laborers sanctuary in the church. And I talked to a young man um, uh, who was from Mexico who told me that he was, ready for this, a pediatrician. <laughs> and that it was better for him and his family for him to be a foreman for landscaping. Mm-hmm. here in the United States. That's a real win-win. Bob, in just a few moments we have left, I want to address something else. You write about harnessing the power of the powerless, but how can we do that when uh, uh, a whole political party seems to be working so hard to disenfranchise large segments of the voting population? Well, I think if you look at, like I said before, um, I cannot believe the progress the New York State Legislature made in realigning budget priorities. Uh, you know, things that were the the, um, the campaign for fiscal equity for New York City, which was an issue that where Albany was just not giving New York City its fair share. That went on for a generation. Mm. And this more dynamic uh um, an activist and progressive uh, group of legislators were able to advance the ball dramatically on that front. So it's not like it can't be done. The problem is that it's not really successes are not reported. So there's a reinforcing thing that happens when people have community based news that reflects their priorities and they see reflected in the news their own personal struggle. So it starts also with that. Um, and I mean, that's the kind of questions you see Jillian Jonas, uh, who works with uh, a BAI and is uh, uh, works with Michael G. Haskins when she has a chance to ask the mayor questions. They're always rooted in the particular circumstance of people in a neighborhood. So, no, I'm I'm actually optimistic. I, I do believe I'm seeing right now for the first time in my life that the, the balance between capital and labor is shifting, albeit ever so slightly, towards labor. And, and people are having a different attitude about work. In New Jersey, the public mind poll just did a poll. One in four New Jerseyites plans on quitting their job rather than returning. There is a national reconsideration about work. And so you see all this hand-wringing, like, what can we do to get them back to the salt mines? Oh, we should stop giving them that extra $300. And they're, they're disconnected from the fact that people have in, um, kind of uh, in existentially experienced this mass death event. They've seen, like in the case of New York City Civil Service, 400 of their colleagues die who were essential workers. I mean, the level of impact, and this is something covered in the book, which is not discussed. We don't hear enough reporting about the circumstance of work pe- working people at all. We hear everything about capital. And if it wanted to go to the moon, and how happy is it, and who did it to Forrest, and what kind of bathrooms does it have? But you won't know, for instance, if you listen to mainstream media, that in New York State, 250,000 people, according to NICOSH, which is a reliable nonprofit, occupational health nonprofit, 250,000 people, essential workers, were exposed to COVID and had a bout with the disease. Another 150,000 have an asymptomatic infection 
which worker comp attorneys will tell you, me and say should, file the claim, even though they don't need any help right now, because there's a one in three, one in five chance that sometime in their working life, they're going to have a health issue. That's 400,000 people in New York State alone that could potentially have a long-term health consequence of COVID. Now multiply that by 50. Okay, have you heard that anywhere else? Well, you heard it here, and uh, we are pretty much out of time. Oh, but sorry. I want to remind our listeners that your new book is Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, published by Democracy at Work. And people can also catch you, what, on Twitter? Yes, and, that's Stuck Nation. Uh, Okay, and the stucknation.com as well, and muckrack.com, Bob Henley. I'm the chief leader. Okay, well, I look forward to when you rejoin us on this show. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Leonard. Take care. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more, you can access our archive of over 500 interviews at WBAI.org. And we're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past programs at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it to to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Because like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard financially by this pandemic. And a lot of our longtime listeners and supporters who have had to drop their support, which is why we are asking anyone who's able to at this time of crisis to please step up and make a contribution at any amount to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopate at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We depend 100% on the generosity of our listeners. We don't take money from any other sources. And the way to um, to do your part is to call 212-209-2950 right now or to go online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, becoming a sustaining member is a great way to um, support BAI, what we call a BAI buddy. You won't don't have to shell out a lot of money at any one time, but... And you can become a BAI buddy or make a contribution to any amount, again, by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. My great thanks to everyone who's already supporting this station in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Peabody Award-winning director uh, Jamila Wignot will discuss her new documentary, Ailey, about the legendary Alvin Ailey Dance Company. <laughs>